Now, I'd like us to sing one song and then have a prayer, and that song is Shout to the Lord, and our sister will help us. Shout to the Lord, that chorus part again, right? Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us see. Power and majesty, praise to the King. Mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name. I sing for joy at the work of thy hand. compares to the promise I have in you. We thank you for the precious promise that you would become all things to us. And in light of this invitation, we would lay hold of the treasure that is being passed on to us and to our generation by faith to have a full counsel of God gospel, to have a clear vision of the Lord Jesus in all of his humanity and divinity, and to live as the testimony of Jesus here upon this earth. Lord, these things are treasures in your eyes. And even in these days, you're convincing us of the fact that they're treasure to us. So help us now, Lord, as we continue to practically work out how to fight the good fight, how to guard by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us the treasure that you have entrusted to us. We entrust and commit this life to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so before I begin even this afternoon, let me find out how many people here, here were not here yesterday. All right. Well, it always makes it more interesting when there's folks who have no idea what's going on. But we've taken two phrases, actually, from 
Timothy's, first and second Timothy, to make a, a, a sort of a, a larger point. The first phrase is fight the good fight. The second phrase is guard that which has been entrusted to you. And we have said that our progress in our obtaining and holding to the standard that we have obtained involves faith which apprehends, faith that lays hold of the Lord and all he is to us. It takes faith to do that. We love him even though we don't see him. We're convinced that he is God's treasure and that we are his treasure. And we're trying to possess these things by faith. It takes a walk by faith. It takes a fight of faith. But it's surely worth it to fight the good fight. On the other hand, we have to guard and be on our guard. Because even while we're fighting, there are those kinds of dogs that just look for some kind of opening of uncovering to attack and in the end to try to steal away the treasures that we have received. And so we've got the fight on the one hand and guard on the other. And so we looked the first day and we saw that uh, Paul exhorted Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And yet at the same time, he had to keep a good conscience as the first guard dog in the backyard when the enemy is coming to steal something away. You're fighting the good fight of faith, but something's going wrong, and you don't know it, but you start to hear, raw, 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 raw. that's the still small voice inside. That's the conscience saying, uh-oh, uh-oh, something's wrong, something's wrong. And all those kinds of nauseating sounds that go on in the middle of the night when the alarms go off. Now, God bless the saint who has a good conscience because they will not overstep the boundaries of their good conscience. And so the alarm remains on. And then the second day, yesterday, we talked about this matter of fighting the good fight of faith by taking hold of the life of Christ himself. Christianity is nothing if Christ is taken out of it. And the Christian life is nothing if it is not a walking by the enabling of the Lord himself who lives in us. The very heart of our faith is not a religion or a code of ethics, but a person who empowers us to live in a way that's a treasure. And you probably know some people in, in a place that you assemble at who are absolute treasures in their old age because they have known the life of Jesus as their life. And when you meet them or talk with them or pray with them when you have a problem, they are just a literal treasure to you. And it's because when they pray, they bring you into the presence of Jesus. I remember as a young Christian uh, uh, being, being in a small house meeting with just a dozen people, and there was this dear saint of God who was in his late 70s at the time, and we fellowshiped on things, and he shared with us many wonderful truths about the life of Christ. But I'll never forget what happened when he closed his eyes and prayed at the end. And I felt like I was ushered right into the presence of God. And I thought to myself as a brand new Christian, who is this person that knows Jesus so intimately? 
He was just talking casually to him. As a matter of fact, I was such a brand new Christian, and I was in this group where there were ten Christians and then me, the brand new Christian. And he was praying, and he was saying his English. He said, now, 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 Lord. He said, we thank you for this wonderful time we've had together. And, uh, oh, uh, you know, bless that big boy who, who just found faith. And, uh, yeah, and he was just so real. And I thought to myself, wow, I'd like to know God like that. Must be a treasure. Well, now we're on the way, right? But you need to lay hold of his life and do it by faith. Don't let the enemy say, oh, you're not worthy. Jesus doesn't like you. He likes your brother, but he doesn't like you. Forget it. Everybody has an older righteous brother. And even though you're the scoundrel, even as I was, the middle of the pack of three, I was the in-between kid, which explains a lot. Still, somehow, by faith, I would press through because, of course, you know, mom and dad, they always liked the oldest son, my older brother. And my younger sister was always spoiled, you know, how sisters are. <laughs> she always got the most at Christmas. Of course, you know, it was a hairpin and a thing here and a doodad and a shirt, a skirt and all this kind of stuff. You know, and I got one toy, you know. But even though I was the middle boy, I felt somehow Jesus loved me, and I decided to press in anyway. There's a certain desperation when you realize just how crummy you are. You just press in anyway. You say to yourself, okay, I may get creamed running after Jesus, but I'd rather run after Jesus and get creamed than stand on the outside and miss the blessing. And sure enough, I ran on the inside, and Jesus said, well, how do you do, Dana? Come on, run with me. So there we go. And there you go. Running with Jesus, the race that is set before us. What a great privilege. Now, the third thing I want to share about today, and of course it's all intertwined with what our dear brothers are sharing in the morning and in the evening, is that, that we also, in our fight, fighting the good fight of faith, have, have a fight for sound doctrine. This is known in the lectures in the morning and the evening as the faith. So we want to look at this in regard to Timothy. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he is uh, talking about some men who are preaching strange things from the law. They have no idea what they're speaking about. But there's some Christians, you know, who teach strange doctrines. And if you, when you go to 1st and 2nd Timothy, you'll see a number of references to people teaching strange stuff. Christians are always given to preaching strange stuff. It comes when either they stare at one verse too long, and like when you're in the bathroom looking at the tile floor and this tile's kind of come up. Uh, if you stare at the scripture long enough, it'll kind of come up out of context, and you'll come up with a whole brand new system. So, Paul says this in verse 8, uh, but we know this, the law is good if, it, if one uses it lawfully. And then he mentions the different things, and then down in verse 10, the law is good for those who are immoral, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 
Here Paul is saying specifically, I have been entrusted with this glorious gospel. And I want you to teach sound doctrine in the midst of all of this kind of error. Now let's just stop for a moment and understand that teaching, Christian teaching, Christian prophecy, uh, is not, its end is not knowledge. According to Paul, knowledge is a means to an end. If you look in chapter 1, verse 5, here Paul is reminding Timothy of this very fact. Don't just start teaching knowledge. Listen. The goal of our teaching is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If you are taught something or you teach something, the end of it should be conduct. Love, conscience, faith. That's the end of knowledge. Knowledge doesn't have a self-end. This is how some people get off. You know, there's a lot of knowledge strings. If you get on websites and you start running a, a string on some kind of knowledge, it takes you out endlessly, out into the realms of speculation and all kinds of stuff. But the goal of our instruction and our teaching is not that our heads will swell with knowledge, but that we would learn how to love, how to live with a good conscience, and how to exercise sincere faith. So in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, we see this reference to sound doctrine, sound teaching, in verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith, you notice that, the faith, and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. Ah, there's a fight for sound doctrine. Look at another passage, where again it talks in the negative, in chapter 6, in verse 3, there's guys teaching doctrines, but they're not the right kind. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, and that again is what Paul mentions in chapter 1, verse 5, doctrines conforming to godliness, that sound words are involved in that. Uh, and then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we, we have to read a, a bunch of verses here because it gets down to the soundness at the end. But just watch and see how many crazy cornballs there are in the church today. Verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, dece deceiving and being deceived. 
You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Praise God from his youth. Timothy was taught the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, of course, by his mother and his grandmother. And this was a basis of sound teaching that is able to save and even produce righteousness in the believer. It's so important. Because once again, if you'll notice in the negative, in chapter 4, and uh, verse 3 of Second Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Why not? Why don't they like sound teaching? But wanting to have their ears tickled, tickle, 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 how do you tickle the ear? What, is, what does that mean, tickling the ear? Give me some new idea, some novelty, something cool, something I haven't thought of before, something that's like intriguing, even if it's speculation. Just tickle my ears. Stop tickling your other people's ears. I see some of you. You're tickling the ears of those in front of you. Cease. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with ear-tickling. Uh, send us the ear-tickling guy. We want the guy who tells the jokes. We want the guy who carries on like some kind of maniac. Oh, we want a good ear-tickler. Send them in, you see. And they will turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths. Oh, forget about telling us the truth. Tell us some kind of myth story about from the, the, the Gospel of Thomas. Oh, yeah, we like that book better than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Have you ever read the Gospel of Thomas? Huh? Well, it's an interesting read because it's completely written by a lunatic. <laughs> but these modern people and the people who are, you know, behind the, uh, what was it? The, the code, you know, what is it? Da Vinci Code. I mean, they, they quote this Gospel of Thomas as one of their main sources of the way, the fact that Jesus had a wife and kids and all this kind which is not even in there, but they've just, they'll forget it. Do you see what I'm saying? You see how you would sit there spellbound if I talked about the, the, the Da Vinci Code for an hour. All right, clean out your ears. No more ear tickling here, you see. But Timothy is entrusted with sound doctrine, and he's supposed to pass it on. That's the very meaning of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now listen, the things that you've heard from me, that's the sound teaching that Paul gave him, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these, there's that word entrust, these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Take this sound teaching and pass it along. You are a generation who's receiving treasure, the faith, sound teaching, and you need to pass it along in the same way that Timothy was exhorted on. Pass on this treasure. Now, of course, because truth 
the gospel, the faith, is saving faith. Not just truth for truth's sake, but saving truth. Of course, you know there's an enemy who wants to throw in counterfeit on every hand. Because the enemy hates saving truth. And so if he can pervert or distort the gospel in some way, he comes in in all kinds of strange way to fight against the truth. He tries to lead people away from the faith. Now, you remember what our brothers have been sharing in the morning and evening. The faith is a, is a simple term that includes the sum total of the truth of the gospel that you find in the New Testament. But it's even more than that. It's just not doctrine. It's a living testimony and expression of that doctrine. So keeping the faith is not just a matter of having a bunch of doctrines correct, but it means living in the truth of those doctrines. And this is something that has to be contended for. So the enemy tries to drive people aside with all kinds of false doctrine. And so we just want to look at a few verses here that, that, that speak of these kinds of things. As an example, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They will fall away from the faith. This faith has been handed down through the church, through the generations, through the millennium. They fall away from it, adhering to strange doctrines. Again, in chapter 6, in verse 10, he talks about what riches can do to distort the truth. You know, if you're going to remain rich and nasty rich and be a, be a selfish nasty rich, you've got to twist the gospel. Because the gospel is dead set against that. So it says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. Let's just leave that phrase in our minds. In chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, let's read 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Same word again. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments in what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. So now there's an enemy out there who's trying to bring in false light. Even he comes as an angel of light with doctrines and teachings that lead people astray from the faith, from the truth. And uh, it's even called in certain places here, as in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, strange doctrines. I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may instruct, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. There were men there in Ephesus, in, in Mas, uh, to remain in Ephesus because some men were teaching strange. What kind of doctrines are those? Well, you want to hear about it? Verse 4, nor pay attention to myths. 
endless genealogies, which give rise to speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Uh, let me ask you a question now, and I'm looking for somebody to answer a question. Name me a, a, a cult or a sect or something that went off into speculation regarding genealogies. Number one in the world. Which one? Mormons. In Salt Lake City, they have a huge vault with the genealogies of people because they're trying to find out if you're one of the lost tribes of Israel. Because if you are, you have a special place. So they've come up somehow with how the Wu family actually came from the tribe of Simeon or something. You, you know what I'm saying. It. They've got charts. They've gone crazy with genealogies and charts and all of this kind of stuff. That's all they work about. Oh, I don't know. Congdon, that's my name. Can you imagine Congdon being some tribe of Israel? I wish I were Levi or something, you know. But, uh, so anyway, they're, they're completely given to genealogies because what, what's actually behind this? I am not just a human. I am a special human on some kind of level above the rest of the riffraff. You see, that's what I'm going to discover. Ah, I'm one of the chosen. I'm from the tribe of Dan because my name is Dana. <laughs> Go on with this kind of stuff. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Strange doctrines. And there in chapter 4, verse 1, they will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, the question, what Christian group is going to say, now we're holding to doctrines of demons? No, but here's what they do. They propound doctrines and statements based on angels who have spoken to them. Who knows how the Mormons got started? This guy had a vision. In fact, an angel came to him. And the angel's name was Moroni. Now, there's a good Jewish name. And this angel helped him write this whole book. And I have no doubt that he actually had an angel who was writing to him. Unfortunately, it was an angel of light. Many Christian groups and people say, Now, an angel told me last night. Now, we know in the Scriptures, occasionally an angel came to Paul. But do you think every day he was saying, Oh, you know what? The angel Myrtle came to me last night and said I should wear a blue tie today. <laughs> like it's a daily occurrence. But today, in some Christian circles, hearing a voice of an angel giving directions is a daily occurrence. Immediately, your warning amateurs should start going, Woo, 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 woo. All right. Um, let's see. Um, well, I mean, we could keep looking at these kind of verses. This is strange doctrines. But uh, let's ask the more important um, uh, question here. There's actually a few answers to this. But first, how do we remain in the truth? Now, let me give you a warning. Your mind power alone cannot keep you from false doctrines. Because the angel of light is smarter than you. The angel of light knows your weakness and what he can prey on and what he can get you interested in. So, your mind is not going to keep you from it. But thank God we have something. So, I'm going to talk now of the third guard dog, if I could say this. You know, the first one was good conscience. Second one was life. The life of the Lord itself. Hardly a guard dog, but you know. Now, this guard dog is called 
the anointing. How do you keep yourself from false doctrine? The anointing. Now, where does that come from? Did I just make that up? It's a new doctrine. Brothers and sisters, I feel it. Thus says the Lord. No, no, it's not a new doctrine I made up. Where is that found? It's in First uh, John, exactly. First John chapter 2. Let's look at it. This is the most wonderful promise. Now, you see, John has to deal with false doctrine and false spirits. And the thing that John brings to the table, which brings a whole new dimension to false teaching, is this. For John, false teaching is just not false teaching. False teaching always has a spirit underneath it. It isn't just mental teaching. There's a spirit underneath whose purpose is to bring you into some kind of bondage. If you look in chapter 4, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead, but... Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, you see, many people talk about false doctrines in different religions based on this verse. And it's true. Christology, that is, who Christ is, has a lot to do, as we'll see, with the truth of the gospel. But John is saying there's something deeper in deception than just mental misapprehension. There's a spirit that deceives. But, have I scared you now? <laughs> okay, but here, here's, the, here's the deal. There's an antidote. Uh, if you look in verse, um, let's see, uh, verse 23 of 1 John chapter 2 now. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Now that means the truth, the gospel. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, and you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now he comes down and starts talking about the one, this anointing that abides. Verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. What is this anointing? Well, ladies and gentlemen, are you surprised that in some measure that life of the Lord that is within you gives you some sense there's something wrong here? That's what it means, that anointing abides within you. From the moment you become a Christian, Christ's life inside you becomes that alarm that starts to buzz and make you feel uncomfortable inside. When you're hearing something that looks good, sounds good, but something inside is unsettled, that anointing abides in you. Now, he's not saying you don't need teaching. What he's saying is... Don't just go by what men say when you feel something right here. Obey that anointing within. It's a guard dog, just like your conscience, to keep you from false teaching. 
And I have heard many wonderful testimonies, especially of brand new Christians who didn't know night from day the Old Testament from the New Testament. But they came under some kind of teaching and something was unsettled inside and they said, I just felt wrong. I, I, don't, I can't explain it. And they left. That anointing is very, very important. But that anointing is a, another guard dog that is there for you and always will be there for you, but is to be eventually augmented by the greatest safety to false teaching there is. What is the greatest antidote to false teaching, false doctrine? You know what it is? When you know the Lord Jesus. Experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It's just like this. You see, my dad has passed on to the Lord now, but I know, I know my dad. I know when he gets angry, when he's happy. I know his ways. I know his talk. Now, somebody could give me a tape with, with what sounds like my father's voice on that tape. But if he's saying some things that are out of character with my father, I can immediately say, that's not my father. They say, well, the voice is the same. I say, that may be the same voice because somebody's tricked up the voice, but that's not my father because I know my father. My father was a kind and loving man. And if they come in with some kind of harsh thing, I know immediately that's not my father. Now, the goal in our walk with the Lord is to come to the true knowledge as Paul calls it in Ephesians 4, verse 20, the truth that is in Jesus. And when false comes along, you, you, you hear the false and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like that comes out of Jesus. Why is Jesus being so condemnatory? Why is this spirit of this person talking so different from the Jesus that I know? That is your greatest safety from false teaching. Do you know Jesus? Now, I'm not just talking about you know him because you're saved. I'm talking about you've walked with him and you've talked with him and you've told him. What's the next line? Oh, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. If you walk and talk with Jesus, you know what he's like. If somebody comes and tries to feed you a bill of goods, you say, hold it, hold it. This smells like Krabby Appleton. This smells like the devil or Corella DeVille or something else. But this isn't Jesus, not the Jesus I know. And that's the place we are to come to, but that's a maturity and a maturing process. But that is, in the end, the antidote against false teaching, and all of this kind of thing. Now, why is it that believers wander from the truth? Now I'm just going to try to give you a picture overall, because there's so much wandering from truth today that I just want to present it under three simple rubrics. From the ancient of days, there have been three great religious distractions to the truth. They're forever symbols of the way the enemy draws us away from sound doctrine, from the faith. And here they are. The first one is 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second is the Tower of Babel. The third is Ashtaroth and the fertility goddesses, which came out of Babylon, and I'll have to explain that a little bit there, I'm sure. Okay, now, because each of them represents a different facet of distraction. You see, we get distracted sometimes by our body. I remember reading an article maybe 15 years ago now that in Seattle there was a church that was into what they called spiritual marriage. Now, this was a large uh, Pentecostal congregation, and the pastor had revealed to him that even though you may be married to Sally, you may be actually spiritually married to Zelda. And they would have these kind of Holy Spirit worship times, and at the end of that worship time, you would get together with your spiritual mate and kind of dance with them, a sort of spiritual dance. I wonder how many of you know this led to tremendous immorality in that church. Are you surprised? I, I, you know, I, I hope nobody came from that church. <laughs> but how is it that people could be drawn away from the truth? It's because of this. Our soul likes things. You know, our flesh. Our mind, our will, and our emotions. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil attracts our mind. The Tower of Babel attracts our will. And the fertility goddesses, sensual religion, attracts our emotions. And if you can be had in any of these ways, because you don't love the Lord more than your own soul life, you can get trapped. Now, let's talk about these uh, things. The first, the tree of knowledge. And what did the devil say? You can be as God. Now, there are all kinds of aberrations of false teaching that comes about because people have this feeling in themselves. You know what? I, I don't know enough about the, the faith. I, I want to know more. And I can't, I can't explain to my friends predestination and free will. I, I, I can't explain to my friends uh, how Jesus is God and Jesus is man. There's got to be some explanation. And somebody comes along and says, I've got just the secret explanation you need. There is an answer. But it's kind of a secret. You have to come and join us. And you study certain things. And then you will begin to see. The mysteries. That's been going on since the first century A.D. and it's called Gnosticism. Mind religion. And it took Christianity out of its basic center and it made it a great mental exercise. The gods were divided into all kinds of levels. Jesus was right under the demiurge, if any of you know Gnostic teaching, which was the third god down from the top. And they had this whole thing of body and soul. All body is evil. Soul is good. Oh, Gnosticism just swept through many aspects of the church, and it's all false teaching, but it's because people wanted to know the truth, to make sense. Now, Timothy is told by Paul, even in these, first, in these two letters, two things. Godliness is a mystery, and faith is a mystery. 
Remember, he said that the deacons who hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You can't explain everything. And mystery implies that there's some kind of tension there between some seemingly contradictory things like Jesus being God and Jesus being man. Or the typical formula we say, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Uh, mathematically, but it's true. And so you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is he really? And the Gnostics say, and they start to change Christology, who Jesus is. He is God, he is man, don't mess with that. But they made up all kinds of variations. You see, it's always subtle. Jesus was on earth in a body, but he really wasn't in a body, he was like a phantom. Yeah. Because, they, you see, they couldn't really deal with the fact that Jesus actually died on the cross because God can't die. And they saw Jesus as God, but not man. And others saw Jesus as man. And they just can't quite grasp how he can be God. So he was a good man, a mighty man, an anointed man, a messianic man, a almost perfect man, a son of God, but not God. They can't quite make it. And so they speculate in these kinds of things. And next thing you know, what they do is take that balance of truth that you can only really see in the light. And they go out of the light and take the balance away. Jesus is God and Jesus is man. Go out of the light and next thing you know, Jesus is something else. Sanctification is both a finished work from the moment you're saved by faith and an ongoing work that you're supposed to work out with fear and trembling. But if you get out of the light on sanctification, eventually it gets into self-propelled holiness that leads to self-righteousness, that leads to error. And there's groups today, even in the United States and around the world, that basically have left off the wonderful fact that we were sanctified by faith from the moment we're saved, and we work from that sanctification toward perfection by the grace of God. And they've moved it to now, you've got to exercise. You've got to uh, do ascetic things. You've got to press and press and press. You know, it's all of this. It's out of whack. You have a calling that is both personal and corporate. If you get out of the light... There's some people who know the calling to the corporate, but they don't know personally their calling. It's a shame. Of course, most Christians today, in most churches today, know maybe something of their personal calling, but they have no idea of their corporate calling. You see, something's been messed up along the way. And you could go into predestination or free will or any of this kind of thing. But here's what man does. He sees that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, ah, I can be like a god because knowledge is power. I can know something other people don't know. And they grab knowledge and they start to chew it. And it starts to twist their mind because there's like uh, poison vitamins in that stuff. And next thing you know, they're picking, they're picking up and deciding all kinds of crazy things. Grace becomes license to sin. How did that happen? Man becomes God. How did that happen? It's completely out of whack. But you know, uh, so much I could tell you, but like, right after World War II, there was what was called the Latter Rain Movement, and a great outpouring came upon Pentecostals, and it was great healing men raised up like uh, 
Uh, what's the guy who has the university out there in uh, Tulsa? Uh, Oral Roberts, yeah. Oral Roberts and many other people were raised up with a real healing ministry. Some guys went out into this doctrine called manifest sons of God. We're in this earth. We can be perfected and not sin and actually be gods upon this earth. <laughs> should go off. But to a mind that's been darkened by tricky teaching, people could actually believe that. Of course, it was all debunked eventually when the men, well, if they were sinless, then the adultery that they were all involved in was uh, problematic, to say the least. Truth is degraded into visions and speculation. What is truth? Oh, the Lord spoke to me today and said, we must uh, go down to somewhere in Central America and drink Kool-Aid. And a whole bunch of people say amen and walk right off the cliff. Speculations, which it talks about in 1 Timothy. Or some people's walk becomes passive because they're so into predestination that they believe all they got to do is veg out and somehow they're a great osmotic chamber that just the truth and holiness just kind of comes into them as they breathe. Ah, praise God, I'm holier now. Ah, praise God. What is the walk of faith? Well, it's sitting around watching television and going, praise God. Completely passive. Why? Well, because Jesus will perfect me if I'm called to be perfected. It's the old predestination gone afoul, as they always said, joking about Calvin. He never said this, by the way. Calvin was much more sound than the Calvinists. But the, not to get into it, the, they would always talk about the Cal Calvin and say, he always says, number six, you're in a fix. Number seven, you go to heaven. <laughs> How did they get off on this thing? You know, it's a balance between predestination and free will. It's not one or the other. You've got to live in that balance of truth. But you see, that balance of truth, which one is it today? So, you know what, I'm going to snap the tension and just go one way. Into free will. Next thing you know, you're preaching doctrines like churches today that preach the doctrine that you could be saved today and lost tomorrow. I, I used to be a country preacher way out in the, uh, up in Indiana when I was going to seminary. And uh, so out in the country, you know, you have all kinds of wild and wonderful, you know, snake handling people and all this kind of stuff. And there was one church around the neighborhood, and they had a revival every fall, just like we Baptists did. But their revival was basically this. All of the saints got saved again and rebaptized. I mean, it was great. And they all got saved. You know, you know why? Because once you came into holiness, and then if a woman in a moment of weakness put on some lipstick, boom, she's lost. But they only gave them a chance once a year, every September, to get saved again. And, of course, if you get saved, you have to be baptized. Boy, they were rebaptizing. I'm telling you, some of those folks just wore waders. They were, you know, they were going in every year. You gain your salvation, you lose your salvation. You gain your salvation, you... Well, this is free will gone amok. But these are the things that appeal to the mind. The angel of light comes and says, i got some mysterious goodies to tell you. Just you. Don't tell Aunt Mabel. Next thing you know, you say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. 
Hey, yeah, that makes it. I mean, you know, if you're young in the Lord, I wouldn't advise that you talk to a veteran Mormon too long. They'll convince you that they're right. It's because they got all the answers in, in a, in, in a one-dimensional, uh, uh, you know, a surface. But if you take it up on other dimensions, uh, oh, well, I, I didn't learn about that. So, you know, anyway. There we go. So that's the first one. If you're going to pick fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because your mind just has got to be satisfied, your mind just wants to know and know and know and know, then somebody's going to appeal to your pride, just like Satan, and say, do you know you can be his God? You say, yeah, cool. And next thing you know, you're in. <laughs> well, back in the 70s, when the Jesus movement hit, there was one of the sort of movements that went astray, and it was called The Way. And they were the only way. <laughs> And in order to get into the way, where they taught you how to use all nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, you took a $120 course from a big loose-leaf notebook, and you went to the meetings, and you learned the different gifts, and you learned about salvation, and you learned this exclusive way. And boy, by the time you got in, you know, they made you first a twig leader, and then a branch leader, and then a trunk leader, and then uh, I guess they buried you in the roots. I had some friends who went that way. It was tragic. But they wanted to know the truth. Somebody gave them a bill of goods. Well, the second way that we can get tricked is the Tower of Babel. Old Nimrod says, come on, let's build us a kingdom. Of course, we would always call it today the kingdom of God. Come on, let's build the kingdom of God. And your will, some people are like strong. I'm going to do this. I know it's going to take sacrifice. So what do they tell you is going to happen for us to build this tower? Okay, first thing that has to happen, total submission to the Messiah man. Every group like this, every Tower of Babel group has a Messiah man. It's, it, there's nothing new under the sun, believe me. I am the guy. People say, oh, I've always wanted a guy. Yes, sir says, total submission, whatever I say, jump off that cliff. Okay, stop. I just want to test you. Second point, legalism. If you're going to help us build a temple, you've got to only wear dresses, uh, never uh, chew tobacco, uh, never curse, uh, 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 women stay on this side, men stay on that side, and then the rest of you in the middle are questionable. A rigorous asceticism. And people say, yeah, yeah, I can do that. By my own will, I can become holy. I can do it. God help me. I'm going to do it. And they push into this asceticism. Oh, not only legalism, asceticism. That especially appeals to people. Right, up early in the morning, we're going to have a get-together. 3 a.m. Come on. Hey, yeah, hey, yeah. The next thing you know, you're up and you're doing all this. Stuff. And then, of course, the next thing is divestiture. All your stuff, come on, you got to give it to the kingdom. All your bucks, all your money, come on, dump it in here, right here. Come on, we're building the kingdom. You say, yeah, yeah, okay. Take a second mortgage out on your house. And, oh, man, i got, I got to build the kingdom. Everybody's worked up. Everybody's will is working. Everybody feels like they're accomplishing something. They're gaining the kingdom. This has happened down through the centuries. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Somebody just expelled a demon here. <laughs> will religion, will worship, will holiness always ends up in shipwreck. The Messiah man turns out to have clay feet. He's taken your money. He's taken your life. And he's burned your will to where you're so passive you don't think you can even go to a church meeting anymore. So brokenhearted, you're giving your life for something. And what did it all come to? Just a great dream. And you bought the dream. And now you live in the nightmare. Now believe me, there's sacrifice in serving the Lord and following the Lord. There is submission to brothers and sisters. But it's all in a balance. And when it gets out of whack, you should sense some alarms going off. There's something wrong here. Something wrong. Because you know what? God will never let somebody complete the Tower of Babel. He'll take them down. And a lot of times, a lot of stuff goes down with it. But even today, you know, all around the world, we have Moonies. And they still believe he's the Messiah. God, help them. And uh, it's, it was the same down through history. It's not even worth going into, but you just, you see a mass blindness of people pushing and pushing. Because not only have they been told that they are on the track to building the kingdom, but they're also told, listen to this, we got the exclusive track. We are the way. Now let me tell you about heresy. There's only one who is the way. Jesus is the way. There is no human organization, even the church so-called, that is the way. Jesus is the way. If we are people of the way, we're following Jesus who's the way. Now when we get to defining ourselves that way, we're already out of the way. But oh, how will... Worship appeals. That tower looks so wonderful. Oh, what are we building? Now, this is cool. The third, now that's the Nicolaitans, by the way. It's always been a problem, just like Gnosticism, where one leader rises up and takes authority and controls the people of God. It eventually shows its true colors. But today, the number one of the temptations is this fertility goddess. Now, you know, Babylon's religion basically is based upon a woman who bore Nimrod, the son of God. And so the whole Babylonian religion has this mother goddess, sort of like Mary, you know. But forgetting the Catholic understanding of this whole mother religion thing, down through the centuries, in the ancient days, and you know, in Israel, what was the biggest problem when you really get down to it, Israel had? It was the fertility goddess that really hung them up. Here were these shepherds and these farmers working hard all year long. And then down came these women, clinking their cymbals in their hands and doing these kinds of seductive dances. And they, they were the uh, guardians of the uh, temple of Baal. Now, Baal is the bull. 
And these are all uh, temple prostitutes, just to be honest with you. And they come down into the village and out among the fields. And they say, come up to the temple. We worship. We have a feast to uh, Baal. And in the midst of the feast, we have an orgy. Now, if you're a hardworking man and you're married to Zelda, who's got 12 kids and doesn't want you to get near her tent one more time, you're drawn away somehow by this thing. And, and they also give you a good rationale for it because they say, here's the deal. Not only does this appeal to your emotions, even your sensuality, but it also helps your crops. Now, the fertility thing all worked in like this. You see, if you do some fertile stuff, I'll say no more about that. Uh, you produce a kind of fertility uh, vortex in the area that improves your crops and your, your cows will be bigger and your children above average. So, of course, it's, it's very appealing. You lay down your bucks, you go to the temple, you get involved, and next thing you know, of course, back in the old days, God swooped down and killed 46,000 people. Because what happens is, when emotion-based false religion comes into the camp, it's like a plague in the camp. Just like happened back in the days of Moses on the mountain when the people started worshiping the god, bull god, Baal. And in the midst of the orgy, the Lord Moses came down and the people got sick from eating gold water or whatever. You know, don't want to get political here. But anyway, uh, but you see, the whole appeal is to our emotions. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in the United States, we have an unhealthy obsession with our emotions, with romance, with sexuality, with... Being completed with uh, me, me, me. So here this afternoon, I am forming a new religion called the religion of me, me, me. How many of you want to join? Oh, all the hands go up. You see, it's all about you. Listen, our church is to serve you. You want to go bowling? Build a bowling alley. You want to uh, watch the service, uh, kicking your feet back and, and drinking the Starbucks and watching the big screen? We got it. We got whatever you want. Just relax. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to pick on those churches that are trying to cater to the needs of people, because uh, I'm not calling that false religion. But I'm saying that when religion begins to feed our emotions, and, and the basis of our worship is emotional, you know, we have these huge worship rallies today, and I want to say that I have seen some uh, young people's lives changed at those worship services because they really touched the living God. But listen, there's a difference between working up your emotions and God touching your spirit. And there's a difference between emotional worship and spiritual worship. Spiritual worship does not uh, uh, exclude emotional worship. Actually, spiritual worship should involve our emotions, our mind, our will, and our bodies. But it's the origin of the thing that makes the difference. And if we're going to cater to meeting people's emotions and selfishness, we get off into error so quick that next thing you know, what happens is, is unbeknownst to us, spirits come in. On emotions. The most usual vehicle of spiritual oppression is emotional need met by demonic expression. Now, I know some of your eyes are bugging out at this point. You have no idea what I'm talking about. 
But in the Bible, it talks about the spirit of Jezebel being in the church of Thyatira. And how did she ever get there? There was something emotional about this, this person, whether really a woman or not. We don't really know. Something seductive. What was Jezebel teaching? Listen to this. The deep things of Satan in the church? Somebody's teaching the deep things of Satan? Don't you think it should be the deep things of God? But it's so emotional to be on the bed with Jezebel. It's so sensual. It's so self-fulfilling. And many times people go astray because there's something that fulfills their emotions. Ladies and gentlemen, even right now in the United States, there's a, quote, revival going on in a certain section of the United States where a man hears an angel every night and comes and preaches and people get healed and people are swaying back and forth in a tremendous wave of emotion. I'm not going to judge in the end what the actual basis of that, quote, revival is. But I have watched it a number of times on the web, and I've yet to hear the Lord Jesus exalted. Something's wrong there. But how can you say something's wrong when, you know, 8,000 people are coming every night? It's been going on for three months. Does that make it right? But people are so hungry. I... <laughs> You know, you know, I'm a crazy guy. So I, I do meetings occasionally where we uh, ask, you know, anybody who's sick and wants prayer for healing to come up. And we have brothers and they pray for these people that they might be healed. According to the scriptures, we, we practice things like that. Well, one time we did this and um, this lady came up and she was one of these ladies who really needs emotional something. I don't know. Anyway, she'd heard about this thing of getting slain in the spirit, wanted to be slain so much. That when I went over to just say, okay, now we're going to pray for you. We anoint her with oil. And I touched her. Boom, she fell down on the ground. Well, of course, I was more surprised than anybody. Because <laughs> <clears throat> I frankly think nine out of ten times, that's just emotional expression in excess. And a lot of the stuff that's hooting and hollering and carrying on, and I say this is a charismatic, ladies and gentlemen. Here is what I say. Let anything that is done or any gift of the Spirit be manifest in the character of Jesus, and I say amen. But if anything is self-exhibitionism or just crazy, I mean, Jesus was not a whirling dervish. I'm sorry. They do that in the Middle East among the, uh, you know, what, what, what's the name of the particular Muslim group? That, what is it? No, 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 not Benoit, no. And, you know, my mind's just going off. But, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a mystical sect among the Islamic. And they, they, they are whirling dervishes. They get under the power of a spirit. And they spin and spin and spin and spin. And you can go there today and see it. I mean, it's a phenomenon. I don't think that's the character of Jesus. I'm sorry. Not the Jesus I know. So you see what I'm saying? Our measure is the character of Jesus. Whatever is done, let it be done and see Jesus in it. Not just something wild and crazy. If they're shouting, let it be a shout in the character of Jesus. As one overwhelmed with the love of God. And not just shouting to be shouting. 
You know, I mean, there's so much excessive fleshliness that's called worship. And I'm just calling to task on these things because, believe it or not, even something as simple as that can start to lead you away from the faith that the Lord wants you to hold on to. Well, so now we have to fight. And fight the good fight for sound doctrine. Or as it says in Jude chapter 3, contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. There is a battle there. You must fight these things. And how do you, hold, how do you fight the fight? Let me be positive here in, a couple, in three ways and then let me be negative for the end. Here we go. Three things positively I just want to say. If we're going to fight the fight for sound doctrine, number one, hold the life of Jesus up as the measure of the Christian life. That's what Timothy was asked to do. If somebody is going to go astray, they're going to go astray. But you hold up Jesus as the measure of the Christian life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And our character and our actions should reflect the Lord Jesus. He is the testimony that we're holding up. Second of all, it's important that we preach the gospel of grace to counter those religious errors that tell people they're not good enough, they're not up to the grade, and they need to do something on their own to attain to holiness. It's important that people understand that they have been saved by grace, sanctified by grace, perfected by grace, glorified by grace. And if you preach the grace of God like that, then you can preach and exhort the saints toward perfection. But they'll understand it's within the context of the finished work of Christ. And it's under the, the light of a loving, loving Savior and not an angry God. So important that we hold up these things. And Timothy, as a preacher, was called to do these things. And the third thing is this. It's so, so important. And brothers and sisters, this really appeals to you as in your young people's group and everything. To walk in the light together. If you walk in the light together, then when somebody starts getting in the shadows, as it says in Hebrews chapter 3, exhort one another while it is today, lest the deceitfulness of our hearts pull us away from something. Walk in the light, because in that light there is that anointing that lets us know something's wrong. Now, you know something? In the body of Christ, we have some people who are, I'll just say, external or extroverted, and perhaps not so sensitive to something going wrong. But thank God we also have some people who are our sensitizers. And they sense when something's going wrong. And we need each other. I have learned that sometimes that we, we, you'll have in a, in a fellowship some very quiet, sort of a very shy person but they have unusual sensitivity to when the enemy is doing something or when something's not quite right. But the problem is, if we hee-ho guys, great extroverts and the loud talkers and all this stuff, don't listen to those people, we can end up in trouble. We really need one another. You know what I'm saying? God has given us watchdogs. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of this. In every assembly there's watchdogs. And even some of them look like bulldogs. Well, thank God for them. You may say, ah, they're always holding us back from doing God's will. No, a lot of times they're saving us from running off the rails. So thank God for the faithful ones who are charging, but thank God for the guards 
We'll say, hope, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to listen. They got their antenna up. Something's going on, you know. Those three things. And then, for those of you who just need something a little simpler, let me just re rehearse these five things. If you see these five things in your midst, they are warning signals according to the Word of God, and you need to begin to pray and ask God what's going on. Here are five warnings to heed. Number one, if in the assembly or the group that you're part of or something you joined at college or something and you don't know really what the basis of it is, and, and they begin to teach some kind of altered Christology, that's your first evidence something is wrong here. Most doctrinal error comes out of a faulty Christology that is who Christ is. It's a warning signal. That's how, the, that's how all of these groups that we call sects and everything, sects, have gone astray. They did something to Jesus that caused them to propound certain doctrines. Number one, that's two. Number two, if this group has any sort of secret or novel teaching, either in isolation from Scripture or out of context in Scripture, I remember a group in the 60s when I was a brand new Christian, and this group came along, and they used this scripture, uh, not only by his stripes we are he healed, but they used such kinds of scriptures as that as to imply that the way we get delivered from various demonic and emotional problems is to sort of regurgitate them together. So we take somebody here, and there's a woman who's angry, and they would give her a pillow. And all pray and pray and pray. And this woman would start beating the pillow and beating the pillow and get the anger out. Ten years later, she's grown up to beating her husband. And she still hasn't gotten rid of the anger. You know, if you release soulish anger, it just gets bigger next time. But this is a strange teaching that appealed to people. This is a, it, it was all about vicarious intercession. Uh, I won't say anything more than that. Number three. Any organization that demands absolute submission to a Christ man, watch out. When the human conscience is subjugated to a human being, you have gone out of the light. You must always, I mean, the, one of the great teachings of Martin Luther was, I have to appeal in the end the scriptures to my conscience and not to the church. That's what he said in, uh, as he left Catholicism. All right. Number four. <clears throat> Any group that tickles the soul rather than touching the spirit, you need to watch out. Especially if you feel really good vibes here. You know, it could be you're one of those people who's emotional, and here's a group that says, Okay, now we're going to do a group hug. Here we go. And first you have a group hug. Now, okay, now we're going to have individual hugging. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Now, you know what I'm saying. And then I say, oh, I, I was hugged. What a wonderful place. 
And it turns out the group is called We Hug the Devil. Now, is that a crazy example or what? If you even find a group that says, we hug the devil, get away from that group. <laughs> Number five, any group that claims that they are the exclusive way. I'm sorry. We want to be a testimony of the Lord Jesus, and we know that's a narrow way. But who has the guts to say, I'm it? But through history, it's always been that way. It's exciting, you know, to feel like the Lord's doing something in your midst. But there's a tremendous difference between saying we want to stand as a testimony of Jesus in this place and saying we are the testimony of Jesus in this place. I'm sorry. I know too many overcomers in the other churches, whether Thyatira or Smyrna or Sardis, to buy that. We just want to be his testimony. Let's have that positive attitude. And uh, let our testimony draw people and not our claims to exclusiveness. So uh, these five little warnings I give as a final bit. And then just to say, you know, I I seldom am in a room with a huge pipe organ and uh, so many uh, dear saints who pay so much attention and listen through a long in weary session of talking. And I appreciate that. May the Lord make you His treasure. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray, even this afternoon, that the goal of our teaching would not be to bring anybody under condemnation. The goal of our teaching would not be just for knowledge's sake. Oh, but that we would learn how to love all God's people. That we would learn how to live with a good conscience before God and man. And that we may have a sincere faith. Oh, grant us these higher things as we see and behold the treasure of Christ. And want to be stewards that hold and guard and even increase that testimony in these last days. Even as darkness begins to crawl across the earth. We pray that we might shine as lights in this world, as those who have seen something marvelous and cannot be quiet. Do bless these dear saints gathered for these times, and let these exercise be an exercise unto godliness. Lord, may your will be done in our lives. Set us free from all bondage. And even we know in many of our assemblies there are the tendencies of these things. Oh God, revive us. Break those things that lead us in the wrong way, that we may live in the light and fellowship together with the anointing always upon us. How we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful mercy. And we praise and thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.